October 10, 2021. First things first. Week 4. Where the wild things are. I used to travel a lot. I had a ministry for a while. It involved a lot of travel, a lot of overnights and weekends away and even sometimes weeks at a time away. And invariably, every time I'd get away and I'd take my little red suitcase that I took with me on all these trips, I'd get to my room and I'd set it up on the bed or on the dresser and I'd unzip the cover and flip open the cover and right there on top would be a little note that my wife would always sneak into my suitcase. And sometimes it was just a, hey, we miss you. Hey, thinking about you while you're gone. Or if I was doing something that was intimidating or I need a little courage, she would send a little postal courage along in my suitcase. Always, I never knew how she got it in there, but she'd always sneak that in. Every once in a while I'd take one of these trips and get to where I was going and open up my suitcase and there wouldn't be one there. And I'd think, she's slacking, what's going on here? And then I realized I'd packed too quickly. I didn't give her time to get it in there. So then I started like packing it a couple days early and leaving it open. Here's your chance, a little spot right here, a little rectangular shape right there for it. And uh, it was always a gift. My, my wife and I, we have four kids. Here's, I think we got a picture here of our family. We've been married for 20 years, our four kids who are just a delight and joy to us. And uh, we are, my wife has an, a prolific card writing ministry and encouragement ministry, and we have been the biggest beneficiaries of that. As she has sent little notes like that and notes in lunchboxes and has just loved us so much. That's a, some of you might recognize that's Acadia National Park where we vacationed this past summer. Uh, well, this week, it was her turn to pack up a suitcase and travel. We got news about a week and a half ago that her father um, was rushed to the hospital and they found uh, he had stage four cancer and there was nothing they could do but keep him comfortable. And um, he wanted to come home and so he came home and uh, they went, he went on hospice comfort care at home and um, last night about 8.30 he fought the good fight, kept the faith, and finished his race. And um, my mother-in-law and father-in-law were married for 53 years. He served in the ministry, served the Lord in ministry for 38 years, loves the Lord, uh, introduced a lot of people to Jesus. And in particular, they spent most of their, their ministry career serving in adult rehabilitation ministry, helping uh, alcoholics and addicts get clean and sober. And um, they have three children, plus their, their sons and daughter-in-law, and nine grandchildren. And um, just uh, some of you know, we lost my dad in May. And so to lose both of our fathers and both grandfathers within five months of each other is kind of surreal. And so last weekend, uh, a day or two after we found out the report about my father-in-law, uh, we put Tammy on a plane. As some of you know, it, it, it a quick process of finding a flight, getting it all arranged and getting her on a plane. And I had a little moment where I had her suitcase to myself and I knew just what to do. And so I grabbed a little piece of paper and I jotted down a note and I hid that in there. And uh, she flew out very early in the morning and later that night when she finally opened up her suitcase, she texted me and said, how did you get that in there? I said, I learned from the best. And uh, I won't tell you everything I wrote in that note, but I'll give you the gist of it. That I was just trying to send a little bit of my love with her to Maine where her parents retired. And uh, encouraging her on what I knew would be a rough road. We didn't know... We didn't know it'd be this quick, uh, but we knew it'd be a rough road ahead and uh, sending my love and I uh, asked her to hug her dad for me. And uh, we know he's in the presence of the Lord. He's with his savior and we entrust him now to his savior. I share that uh, A, to be transparent at the outset here that I'm kind of fragile. So uh, 
getting that news late last night was, was hard and difficult. And uh, also because it's not lost on me that actually one of, the, one of the images I've had in mind for this series that we're wrapping up today is this idea of a note stuck in your suitcase or a note stuck in your lunchbox to encourage you as you set out for something. Uh, I remember so many times when I was a kid getting a note in my lunchbox when I had a big test or uh, when I was had a challenging day or there was a field trip, a little note from my mom or my dad. And uh, so many times when Tammy would stick this kind of note in my suitcase and I was going out to do something. And this series that we would call First Things First is kind of that same tone, that same idea of God encouraging someone just as they're going out to do something new. And we've been looking at these four times when, when somebody is on the verge of a new season, a new chapter, but first God has something for them to do. And if we can summarize the first three weeks of this in, in a word, almost like if you could put this in a note in somebody's lunchbox, it would be that Joshua, the, his note in his lunchbox said, be strong and courageous. And for Jacob, the second week, we saw how Jacob heard from God, I am with you wherever you are and right where you are, here as it is in heaven. And last week we saw with Peter in the early church how the message for them was, forgive as you have been forgiven. And this week, in this last week, I, and I, I think about all of you so often, I know that there are so many different burdens we're carrying. And some of you have come through uh, your own journeys and struggles. And this week, as we, as we think back on the last 40 days, we're 40 days into what I call the emotional new year. If, if the new year really starts on September 1st, here we are, October 10th, we're 40 days in. And I know that some of this has not gone according to plan for you. There have been surprises. Maybe there have been delightful surprises. But in this last week, we're going to look at, fittingly, a scene from the life of Jesus as he was just beginning his earthly ministry, as he's launching out to begin his public ministry. Before he did that, the Spirit sent him out for a particular experience. And we're going to see what this experience is. And unlike Joshua, Jacob, and Peter, where there was a statement that God had for them, a message for them, today it's more of a question, a question for us to ponder. And we're going to dig into this passage and uh, go rooting for this question. And, and we're going to find this in Mark chapter 1. And before we jump into the passage, I want to very, take, take the, the opportunity here to pray for my mother-in-law and, and my, for my wife and her family, but also to pray for the passages as we jump in. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this morning. And um, I thank you for, for Bob, for his life and for his legacy and his love of you. And um, we entrust him to you. I pray for for. Uh, Jan and for Tammy and their, and their family and for all of us as we grieve. And we pray now as we open up this passage that you would speak to us, that you would speak to us by your spirit in ways that only you can and meet us here in this moment. We pray in the matchless name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We're actually going to look at this 40-day temptation of Jesus from two places. Uh, we're going to look first at Mark chapter 1 which is a really shorter version of it. And then we're going to look at Matthew chapter four, uh, where, where Matthew gets into a little more detail. But Mark chapter one, beginning of verse nine, it says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. That once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now, before we get to the message, what that, that one question is that we're pulling out of this passage, I just want you to notice the landscape here. And this is why I like the Mark version of the testimony of the, uh, the temptation story. 
is because he provides some extra details that really reveal a landscape that is always happening around us that we just don't even recognize. And first, Jesus is with the wild animals. We see the wild animals represented in verse 13, which is a unique detail that Mark includes, that Jesus, in other words, is not at a petting zoo. He's among animals that are, are not tame. This is not a tame or safe environment. He's in truly the wilderness with wild animals all around him. The second thing we see here in verse 13 is that he's there with Satan. And Satan is here tempting Jesus. And it's almost like a replaying of the, the Garden of Eden with the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. And for modern minds, it can be hard to wrap our heads around, do we really believe that there is a devil? Do we really believe that there is a Satan? And sometimes this is a hard hurdle for people to overcome. But there is no denying that there is evil in the world. You don't have to pay attention for too long to recognize that there's evil in the world. There is great evil in the world. And you don't have to read the Bible too long to realize that Jesus took very seriously the existence of Satan and the devil. That there are evil forces at play in the world who have malignant intent for our lives and for our world. And here we see Jesus interacting with Satan as Satan is trying to tempt him. Now this is important to understand. Satan is not God's equal. Satan is not Jesus' equal. Uh, he is, he is, I thought that was a cheer, that was just a sneeze, that you can cheer that. <laughs> that, that. Satan is a defeated enemy. God bless you, by the way. Satan is a defeated enemy, and he, and he knows it, and the most dangerous uh, wild animal is one that is hurt or is wounded or mortally wounded. And so here we see Satan trying to work his ploy and working his, his attempt on Jesus. Third thing we see here is the angels. In verse 13, the angels come and they attend to Jesus when the temptation is over. Angels are purely spiritual beings. We, you will not become an angel when you die. You will stay a human. Angels are a special uh, creature. They are, in the original Greek, angel simply means messenger. That they are typically messengers, bringing messages from God and interceding on his behalf. And uh, so we see even angels here. And lastly, this is what's really interesting here in this passage. This is, we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is one of the rare places where we see all three persons in the Trinity being represented in the same passage, where we've got the Father speaking from heaven, this is my Son, whom I love, in him I am well pleased. And we see Jesus there, of course, being baptized and then being driven out into the wilderness for the temptation. And then we even see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus and then driving Jesus out into the wilderness for this temptation period. So it's a really unique passage where we see all three persons in the, in the Godhead, the three members of the Trinity, represented here together in this place. And then there is you and me. And as the old song says, one of these things is not like the others. <laughs> we don't quite match with any one of these. And we look at these four categories. We're not like the wild animals. Well, some of us more than others. But uh, we're not like, you know, not like the evil spirits. We're not like... Uh, the angels were not like the Trinity. And what makes humans unique, there's a word that we use to describe what, what it means to be human, what, what makes you a human. And it's that you have a soul. You have a soul. You are an eternal being with a, and God has a plan for you in his eternal kingdom. And you are not merely flesh and bone. That There is more to your life than can be viewed under a microscope. There is more to your life than can be weighed on a scale. You have a soul. A friend and former colleague of mine, Dr. Ken Shank, likes to say it this way. I've heard him say it, that sometimes Christians think about our soul as if it's the escape pod that's tucked away in our pituitary gland. And when we die, our, our soul escapes, kind of ejects from the body, and that's what gets saved from there on out. But in the New Testament and the Old Testament, there's a little bit of a more holistic view of what the soul is. In fact, in the New Testament, the word for soul is often translated life. 
That soul is the idea that your body, mind, and spirit, they're all together. Soul is what binds it all together. And it's a way of God saying that your, your whole life matters to God. Your mind matters to God. Your body matters to God. Your spirit matters to God. And we know that our ultimate hope is not only heaven, but the resurrection where we'll receive new bodies and, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And we will be able to recognize each other. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He, he was not just a disembodied spirit roaming around, but he was a, in a resurrected body. And we know that's our ultimate hope in Christ as well. But you have a soul. Some people naturally want to ask, what about our pets? Do our pets have souls? I can tell you my dog definitely has a soul. And I think, I think all dogs have souls. What about cats? No comment. I think there's another place arranged for cats. No, the, actually, the problem with cats is ever since the Bible called Jesus the Lion of Judah, every house cat has been on an ego trip ever since. There's no living with them. I'll leave it to somebody else to decide if animals have souls. But I will say that when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, which is so keenly on my mind these days, it seems like a downgrade to be in a new heaven and new earth that does not have animals. And even there's some allusions and references to animals in the book of Revelation. And so some of the best minds I know think, there will be animals. Do they have souls? Will it be my dog? Of course it'll be my dog. I'm not sure about your dog, though. We'll find out about that. But, uh, there, so there is more to your life than what you can taste and touch and smell. There is more to your life than you can weigh on a scale. There's more to your life than what we can grab hold of. You have a soul. And this passage, this temptation of Jesus, is a battle for the soul of Jesus. And Satan is pulling out his best stops to try to, to, to knock Jesus off guard and to win this battle for the soul of Jesus. And we're going to see this in, in Matthew, in this version of it, beginning of verse 2, the three temptations that he levies at Jesus. And the first is this in verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to, to him and said, If you are the Son of Man, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this is the first temptation. Turn stones into bread. And I don't know about you, but my first thought is, seriously? This is how Jesus gets tempted? Why can't I be tempted like this? Like, this seems like child's play by comparison. Uh, Fulton Sheen once said that listening to nuns' confessions is like getting stoned to death with popcorn. And <laughs> listening to... Listening to Jesus turn stones into bread. Uh, and so the question is, if this, is this a miracle? Is this a, a temptation that food miracles are off limits somehow? But we know from the rest of the Gospels that Jesus performed other food-related miracles. We know that he turned the, the water into wine. We know that he was responsible for the miraculous catch of fish in Peter's boat. We know that he fed the 5,000 by multiplying the fish and the loaves. So food miracles don't seem to be off limits. There seems to be something else going on here. If this is merely, on the surface level, a, mirror, a, a temptation, a sign that it's wrong to turn rocks into bread, then I'm doing okay. I don't know about you. I'm one for one so far. If this is what it means to be like Jesus, I have ne I've literally never thought about turning breads into stone. And so I feel like I'm in pretty safe territory. But unfortunately, there's something more happening here. At the root of this first temptation is the temptation to be selfish. That all the other food miracles are about helping other people or about revealing God's power to people. But now Jesus is on his own. He's out in the wilderness. There's only the wild animals to witness this. And Satan is trying to get Jesus, hey, you know, I know you're hungry. Jesus, turn that rock into some bread. You just go, who, no, who, no, what's, what's the damage? Who will know? No one will ever need to know. 
Just go ahead, just go ahead. And it's this temptation to be selfish and to put himself first. And a Messiah who is selfish is no savior, but a tyrant. And Jesus won't have it. He's not having it. He doesn't. So that first temptation is to be selfish. And Jesus isn't having it, and neither should we. So we move on to the second temptation. Verse 5, we see this. That then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put your Lord God to the test. And so now the second temptation is to do kind of a daredevil feat. And this almost looks like a perversion of the, the instructions to Joshua we saw three weeks ago. Joshua was told, be strong and courageous. Don't be very strong and courageous. And now it seems like Satan is double dog daring Jesus. Prove it. If you really are the son of God, do something so that God has to rescue you. Just jump off that building and see if God rescues you. And again, if this is merely, like the first temptation, if this is merely about avoiding the temptation to jump off tall buildings, I'm pretty good in this one too. It literally has not crossed my mind to jump out of the rafters here to start a sermon at any point. And don't worry, I'm never going to do that. I have a very healthy respect of gravity. Gravity has been right every day of my life. And uh, I don't need to dare gravity to do me wrong, to prove me wrong. But here again, this is more than just a temptation about heights. The second temptation seems to be that it's a temptation to be superficial. This temptation is to go out to the temple, throw yourself off this building, and let God swoop in and rescue you in dramatic fashion, and then everyone will see what a big deal you are. And Jesus sees right through it. In fact, there's another word for this called impression management. This is coined by Irving Goffman in 1959. As, as a way of describing the way that we, we put a version of ourselves out there for the world to see and keep the things we don't want people to see backstage. He actually compared this to going to a theater or seeing a play where what happens on the stage is what they want you to see. And they carefully arrange everything and they rehearse it so that you see what they want you to see and they don't want you to see what's going on back in the green room. They don't want you to see what's going on back with costumes and makeup. It's bedlam back there. They don't want you to see that. And likewise, he said, we often put this version of ourselves out there that we want people to see. We carefully manicure a version of ourselves for public consumption. And then there's this other stuff that we just keep tucked away back here. He said this in 1959. Can you imagine what he would say now in 2021? We are experts at superficiality. Superficiality is the curse of our age. We are pros at carefully manicuring Every little impression people have of us, we're pros at cropping pictures just right to keep all the clutter out of the background. We're pros at making sure that no unflattering picture of us ever sees the light of day. Superficiality is the curse of our age. And the second temptation is the, curse, is the temptation to superficiality. And Jesus isn't having that either. And so now Satan, frustrated, brings out all of his big guns and he reveals fully what he's got going on here in verse 8. It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and, and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So again, on the surface, this temptation, is this purely just a temptation to worship Satan? If that's what this is, 
I'm three for three. You should congratulate me. Probably I should congratulate many of you too. I've never been tempted to turn bread, stones into bread. I have turned bread into stone. I've never been t- tempted to turn stone into bread. I've never been tempted to jump off a tall building to impress people. I've never worshipped Satan. I, never, I even avoided those bands in the 80s that they warned us about. Uh, but what seems to really be happening here that this final temptation is about cutting corners. That it's, it's really interesting when you look at these temptations, you would think that Satan interacting with Jesus, the son of God, the savior of the world, that his first temptation would be to get him to not go along with God's plan, to get him to not be the Christ, but to be some kind of a tyrant, to recruit him to his side. But he takes a different approach. His whole approach is not getting Jesus, Jesus to change his goal, but to get him to get there the wrong way to get him to get there by dramatic miracles, to get him to get there by being a, a, a miracle worker who performs little miracles for himself when he's bored and when he's hungry, to get him to be a, a, a hero, to have all the kingdoms of the world at his disposal, but he gets it by worshiping Satan himself. And listen, there could be some people that would say, well, the ends justify the means. If, it's, if this is the price you've got to pay for Jesus to be in charge, just imagine all the good that Jesus could do if he's in charge. So, you know, if this is the price we've got to pay, the ends justify the means, and maybe it's worth it. And every day there are people who cut corners and make little compromises because we feel like we've got to play the game to be in the game, and we sacrifice parts of our soul, we sacrifice parts of our integrity, and we fall into this temptation to cut corners and to compromise. And here's the point. In any of our lives, there are certain pitfalls and temptations. If you're in eighth grade or if you're 38 or 82, there are different temptations at different seasons of life, different stages of life. And we often think that Satan's primary goal, that his primary objective is to bring you to a colossal collapse. And he has a long list of names and long list of lives that he has ruined with great and mighty collapses. But he can get a lot of mileage out of a little compromise. He can get a lot of mileage of a little bit of cutting corners, a little bit of white lies, a little bit of dishonesty. He can cover a lot of ground. He's done a lot of damage by getting people to think, well, the ends justify the means, or this is just the way you got to play the game. But you got to settle the score with your soul. A.W. Tozer summed it up perfectly when he said, the big question at last will not be so much, what did you do, but why did you do it? In moral acts, motive is everything. Of course it's important to do the right thing, but it is still more important to do the right thing for the right reason. And, and if you were merely flesh and blood, if you were merely like an animal that this, all you touch and all you see is all that your life will ever be, then, then none of this would matter. Then you could step on people, you could cut corners, you could do whatever you got to do, and when you'd get there, you'd be happy about it. But when we say that someone has sold their soul, we mean that it's a way of describing how somebody has given up to issues of core integrity. They've given up their values in order to get to where they're going and that's compromised them in a deep way. When we say that someone has no soul, it's the sense that someone has no guiding principles, that they're, they're, there's no empathy, there's no sympathy. They seem to have no compassion towards other people. And when Jesus said, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Yes, he's talking in one sense of bear in mind that you were created for eternity and don't sacrifice your eternal destiny for temporary pleasure. But he's also talking about the fact, not just where you're going to go when you die, but that sense that we see every day of our lives of those people who chase after their dreams and they get their hopes and they get their wildest dreams fulfilled and they get there and they're miserable 
because it's hollow, because they've chased after everything and lost everything that really matters along the way. And there's tons of evidence that, that little white lies and cheating on tests and plagiarizing papers in school bears a great consequence for your soul. There's a professor from uh, Indiana University School of Medicine who's found when they look at brain scans, and when someone is telling the truth, their brain scan is calm and, and it's still. When someone is lying, even if no one else knows that they're lying, their brain scan is frantic. And he's found a lot of research that, that when you're lying, when you're cutting corners, when you're compromising in areas of integrity, your body reacts to that. In other words, your soul pays a price. Even if nobody else knows, even if nobody else is ever aware of it, your soul pays a price for those little, little shortcuts of integrity. In other words, when we are selfish and pursue selfish gains, our soul pays the price. When we settle for superficiality, when we, when we try to eject, project an image that we are wealthier or healthier or have more free time and are having more fun in our lives than other people are, our soul pays the price. And when we cut corners, when we step on people or arrange our world to take advantage of the scheme and to get in on the game, we just play the game in order to get ahead, our soul pays the price. When you cheat on a test at school, your soul pays the price. Even if your teacher never knows about it, your soul pays the price for that. What good what is it to achieve all your dreams? What good is it to achieve everything you want, to receive all the wealth and all the power that you want? What good is it if along the way you lose your soul? Whatever the cost is, whatever the project is, whatever your hopes are, whatever you're chasing after, whatever it costs to fit in at school, it is not worth your soul. And in verse 11, the passage ends saying that then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. So let's chase off the devil and let the angels come and attend to us with that one question I talked about. And here's the question. John Wesley used to begin in his small groups with this one question. How is it with your soul? Every small group, they'd begin, how is it with your soul? Which is a bigger question than, I, I hope that you know, you know, it's been such peace for our family in the last week knowing that we know to the, from our, down to our toes that my father-in-law loves the Lord and he's ready for the moment where he crossed uh, last night. I hope that you know that you've got that kind of peace with your soul, that you know where your soul will go. You know that your soul is entrusted to the Lord. But this question, how is it with your soul, is even bigger than that. Is there anything that's bothering your conscience? Is there anything that just doesn't feel Right? Is there anything at work or in, a, in something you're a part of where they're asking you to do things that you're just not quite comfortable with? I have a friend recently who told me how uh, he recognized that where he works, he was being asked to do things that violate his conscience and his Christian convictions, so he quit. And I think God will honor his integrity as he tries to do, live his life in a way that he can say every day when he's asked, how is it with your soul? It is well with my soul. As we wrap up the series and as we launch into this new year, and even now that we're 40 days into the new year as I measure it, starting in September, how is it with your soul? How's it going so far? Ray Romano knows what, it likes, what it's like to be at the pinnacle of success. He was, uh, at the time when he was on the show, Everybody Loves Raymond, which is playing a character also named Ray, and this is the family from that show, and at the time when he, that show stopped, he was the highest paid actor per episode in history. Still now, it's been off the air for a while, he's still number three 
highest paid actors per episode in TV history. And uh, I've always felt a special affinity with this show because that's what their family looked like on the TV show. At one point, this is what my family looked like. Uh, like a little, our, and our life felt like a sitcom in some ways. We since completed our family with our fourth son, but I've always like, I feel like that's our family just with a little less shouting. And um, so when that show ended, people were wondering, they were kind of clicking on all cylinders. The show was really popular. He was making a ton of money playing uh, Ray Barone on the show. And so some people were surprised that they were ending it when they ended it. And he came out when, on the day they filmed their last episode. And he just told a bit of his story. He said not long before they started that show, he had been living with his parents in his parents' basement in New York City, trying to make it as a stand-up comic and just struggling to get by, not getting anywhere. And so he decided to take one last swing at it and decided to move from, from New York to Hollywood. And he packed up his things, packed up his suitcase and kissed his mom goodbye and said goodbye to his dad and his brothers and made his way for Hollywood. And as he was going, his brother slipped him a note. And when he got to Hollywood, he sat his suitcase down on the bed, flipped it open, and there's the note from his brother. And he opened it up and his brother wrote one sentence. It's all he wrote on this note. And he, he had this note there on the stage at the last filming of the last episode. And all he said was, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet lose their soul? And he read that note from his brother with tears. And he said, I feel like I've gained the whole world. But it's time to go work on my soul. If you achieve all your goals this year, what good is it if you lose your soul along the way? If you fulfill all your wildest aspirations, what good is it if you lose your life along the way? If everything happens just as you hope, but you lose your soul on the way, what's the point? One last thing about my father-in-law. Before his cancer diagnosis last week, uh, he had not been in good health and needed somebody there with him uh, pretty much around the clock. And so often when our family would go to visit, uh, we'd, the boys and I would stay back with grandpa and my wife and my daughter and my mother-in-law would go out for an outing just to get her out of the house and let her get out and do some things that she didn't get many opportunities to do. And one of these times we were sitting back with grandpa, my boys and I, and uh, I'd always, he, at this point he was taking a nap and so I had my ears open to see if, if he needed help or anything he would call. And I could hear his voice coming from down the hall. So I got up and, and went to go check on him, see what he needed. And as I got closer, I realized he wasn't calling for help. He was singing, uh, singing an old hymn that I had never heard before and is a part of his church tradition. And I just want to read these words to you. The song was, Jesus, thou art everything to me. What to me are the joys of earth? What to me is every sight I see? Save the sight of thee, O friend of mine. Jesus, thou art everything to me. Jesus, thou art everything to me. Jesus, thou art everything to me. All my lasting joys are found in thee. Jesus, thou art everything to me.
what a beautiful, powerful name you have. And we take shelter in your name. And even now, as we ponder that question, how it is with our soul, we, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be at work in our hearts, to convict us of areas where we're compromising in ways we shouldn't. to help us to see alternatives that you never leave us without a way out. And for those here who would say they, they, they feel like they're not in jeopardy of just losing their soul in this life, but in the next, I just invite you to pray with me. If you'd like to know that you know that you are in the Lord's hand and to confess your sin and make yourself at peace with your Heavenly Father. Oh Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I confess my deep need for you in my life. And I want to be made right with you. I want to be washed clean. I want to know deep down that I am a child of God. Help me to feel your presence. Help me to walk in obedience with you. Help me to keep in step with you and not to rush too far ahead. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking to me. Thank you for hearing my prayer. It is well with my soul that in Jesus' name.